Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Jeff Booth, author, Bitcoiner, and entrepreneur. We talk about his book, The Price of Tomorrow, The Natural Deflation of Technology, and the Inflationary Pressures of Fiat Money. Jeff also tells us about his experience being CEO, the future of work, and of course, Bitcoin. Jeff has a wealth of experience having been the CEO of Build Direct. He's one of those people that's had to go through the gauntlet of the credit markets and changing consumer preferences. What was enlightening about this conversation for me was how much the credit markets and debt had affected his business and continues to affect businesses in this current market. I hope you enjoy this interview. Jeff Booth, how's everything going? Excellent, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Where in the world are you right now? In Vancouver. Okay. And how are things over in Vancouver? I know Canada's had like a lot of lockdowns and stuff. How's it been for the past year? It's been a lot of lockdowns. And so (laughs) I can't wait to get on a plane. Mm. Uh, Yeah. So it's been more than a year since you've actually like traveled. You know what? Just over a year now. I was in Iceland last year at the end of January and that was the last trip. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, it feels like everywhere in the world is a little bit kind of crazy. And it's interesting how people in different countries have like different perspectives on this whole thing. But glad to have you on the show. You know, you wrote the book, The Price of Tomorrow, and I read it. I thought it was fantastic. And I wanted to talk to you about you know, your general experience with what, you know, happened with your company and everything else. So before we get into all of that, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what you did and how you founded your company and sort of like that origin story? Or Okay. Origin story of that company. I would say I've always been an entrepreneur. And, and so, and so the origin story of Build Direct uh, actually came from a different, I, I had a building company prior to that. Mm. And I failed to deliver a house on time. And I had the people in a, a hotel, furniture and storage. And I was super frustrated by that experience. And I thought with technology, we should be able to solve this experience because just about every single person going through a build or renovation has a similar experience. And it's a supply chain problem. So literally, my co-founder, a good friend of mine and I said, okay, we're going to fix this industry And in 99. Don't invest in us because we're a .com. Invest in us because you think you're going to have, we're going to fix this industry. We set out to do something that seemed almost impossible. And so we had tons of confidence and very little mm-hmm. skills. So that set in motion really a, an idea to set a, create a an online building supply company where you would look a lot like Costco for building materials, but it would be online. Mm-hmm. So between Costco and Amazon where you could buy minimum order quantities and you could get way cheaper prices. I see. You talk about what happened to the company and, you know, your sort of struggles, you know, as you were growing and all of the things that went through. Can you walk us through some of what happened and some of the challenges you faced as an entrepreneur? When you're creating something from nothing, you really don't know. You underestimate what you're going to face. And you underestimate market changes. You underestimate technology changes. You underestimate just about everything, people hiring. And it's two guys in a garage trying to figure out a new way of doing business, trying to explain that to capital, everything else. So the first, that first wave, we said what we were going to do this. We put our own money in first, and then we let friends and family invest in that. And uh, we raised $500,000 in the beginning to be able to set this up. And the whole premise was we would create effectively a logistics, a logistics company that you would be able to buy containers of products from China and around the world with, and you'd use logistics as floating or rolling inventory. So you'd be able to bring the price down a lot and deliver value to the customer, but they wouldn't be able to get terms. So they had to wire money in advance. But so so now you go and set that up and, and you say, okay, we have to build the technology to support that. And that technology build, well, you know this, Jimmy, because you've been in technology for a long time. Technology, that technology build in 99 looked a lot different than it would look today. And so 
we went and built that technology to do that. And that we forecasted would take about a year and a half to be able to put that all together. And subsequently, in 2000, in April of 2000, the dot-com crash happened and everything got wiped out. So now you have a company that you've said you're going to do that won't be even creating revenue for a year more on its best day and the market falls out. And so you have to get through that and you have to raise more money to be able to get through that. So lots of struggles and everything else. When we turned it on, it was pretty incredible. The first month we sold $25,000 a product. By the end of the year, we were selling a million. By the end of the next year, 14 million. Next year, 28 million. And it was just a rocket ship. And because we were paid, and so a lot of people said, no one will pay you in advance. But we found at a certain price, everybody would. And so the business blew up and we didn't need any money. We didn't need to raise any money. We had all the cash we needed because we were paid in advance from selling the product. And that kept on going and it grew into a pretty sizable company. And then in 2008, on the uh, financial collapse, nobody could pay in advance. And the severity of what that looked like, it actually informed some of my thinking on on what the market looked like too. We had LCs at the time that on the counterparty on the other side of the ocean, fully funded LCs that nobody would take. So you realize that credit just stopped completely in the market and our business dropped by more than half in a day, right? And then then Mm. carried on that rate. And at that point, the business should have been dead because we owed a bunch to suppliers. Now you're running future revenues that are less than half and you had to reinvent yourself. And so at that time, what we realized though, is because we had a delivery mechanism that was separate from the product database, most people combine products and shipping together. And so the price you see at the store has shipping embedded and people give free shipping. But on heavyweight items, what that means is what they're doing is subsidizing the shipping cost to the people that are farthest away and averaging it. And what we realized is with the data that we had, we could create a data model that could predict demand for suppliers instead of running that type of model and giving free shipping. And so I... I flew to Turkey, one of our first suppliers, and I said, "Here's first the bad news, we can't pay you. Here's the good news. We can give you this data, and if you move your product to the U.S. and put it in these four warehouses, we believe it'll sell at this rate. So, And we had a good relationship, and obviously the times at that time were really tough. And they said, you know what, the data seems right, let's do it. I had to sell our personal residence, our personal home to be able to fund that and everything else. So really went all in, three kids under five and went, <laughs> and went all in. Only an entrepreneur would know that. It, the, and then when the product landed, it sold out immediately. So we, And then more and more suppliers wanted to do the same thing. So now we didn't actually have to pay for supply again until product was sold. And suppliers were paying us to store it in our warehouses. And so the business, after about a year of kind of sideways at a low number, just took off again. And it was doubling each year. And and it got to about $120 million in revenue, a half a billion dollars market cap. And out of that, realized that... So when I was, again, going back to the data, I really people couldn't handle the data as fast as it was coming. And probably Mm. the simplest way to say it is that. And so we had this predictive model. And people would show up on the website and it would give predictions and everything else. But I'll give you an example of a prediction. So it tells us a supplier, you need 20 containers of this type of travertine in these four locations. And here's your sell through rate. And then the very next day, the buyer changes the feedback and it goes from five stars to three stars. Oh. But what you would realize is people can't keep up to that prediction. So that that needed to be all artificial intelligence driven rather than mm. kind of systems through people. So our people were telling suppliers what the data would do and then forgetting to update them when the data would change or just there's just too much data to be able to see that. So I went to my board and I said, listen, we have to pivot again to create this next wave of a company that would look way more like Amazon. And, and here's a learning in that. When you're a superstar, when you're doubling sales, every thing people, everyone thinks you can't go wrong. 
So they'll say yes, but we underestimated, <laughs> that we underestimated how much capital it would cost to be able to make that transition. And everybody, when you're growing really fast, there's a recency bias to it. And then even though you tell everybody you have to take off the growth to be able to get to the other side, they don't like that very much. So we had to put some debt into the company on the way through that. And the irony is right when it was taking off, like everything you do, just your lifetime value was screaming up. Your cost per acquisition, our cost per acquisition was 10 times less on the way through in the business. So we were through the next innovation going to the, looking at the kind of billion dollar mark in, in revenue and the debt wanted the company. And so I left the company at that point. Really what ended up happening is you can imagine what that would look like. The holder of the debt came to me and said, listen, I love what you're doing. We, it needs a little bit more. I want to own it with you. I'll give you more of the company. But that would mean me saying yes to that would mean me wiping out all of the people who believed in the company and me in the first place. So mm. I chose to walk away. Mm. Well, what's remarkable about your story is just how much the entire credit market factored into your business. And, you know, I mean, from what your business sounds like, it's a pretty straightforward business. You're connecting suppliers to builders, you know, albeit with a lot of different technology in between. And, you know, the entire home building business or, you know, I guess general building as well, it depends so much on credit, on monetary sort of devices to help all of that. You mentioned LCs earlier, for those of you listening that don't know what that is. I think you mean letters of credit, correct? That's right. That's right. (laughs) Thank you. But that was a really interesting, you know, part of the entire story is just, you know, I mean, you ended up having to leave or choosing to leave your company because of the debt that you incurred. Can you talk to us a little bit more about like the role of debt in sort of business today or your company, at least when you were going through it? So if you raise debt and you need more debt, Mm -hmm. then you'd have to get sign off typically for the debt to allow that to happen. And without sign off or a standby, no one would invest equity into a company to be able to get through that. So if you put too much debt in your company, you impair its value. Many people that are leveraging to buy Bitcoin right now, it looks really good if you win and Bitcoin goes up, but it looks really bad on the other side. So if you're fully levered, you better be right and you better have enough cash to go to get through that knot hole because then it increases shareholder return. But in a startup with lots of variability, often you take in debt too early and there is still variability and the debt ends up holding the company or hurting the company. Yeah, it was interesting that you were able to get a lot of money up front from a lot of these companies because they wanted the cheaper price. But then once 2008 happened, that completely reversed. So what did that sort of credit crunch in in that era kind of look like for your business? And like, were you shocked? Did you expect it? Was it surprising? So I've always been something, maybe a superpower. I've always been able to see around corners, see where market structures are going. So I actually knew what was happening in the market overall, in the housing market leading this. But one of the things, and it's fair to say, we actually got arrogant in our own model because even though the housing market started to collapse at the end of 2005, 2006, and it was accelerating. and But our business was still growing really fast because as the housing market was collapsing, people needed to save more money. So mm. we thought we were invincible. And I didn't realize how connected the entire credit market was underneath and that mm. a stop in the credit market stopped everything. Mm. And so that was what essentially happened. And and it made me realize how fragile the existing system was and the counterparty risk all the way down to the sand. There's really nothing backing it. But if people believe there's something backing it, that's the liquidity they're trading on. So the business going in half or less than half the next day, that was a surprise. 
there's no way I could say I would have projected that. There's no way I would have expected fully funded letters of credit to not be taken. Mm. Wow. That's so crazy that they just like were good one day and then not good the next day. It was wild, Jimmy. It's actually hard to believe unless you were there sitting and watching the data. This was a big business and our finance teams and everything else. And unless you were sitting there, nobody knew what was going on. And very shortly afterwards, TARP was announced and everything else, but credit had stopped. So that unwinding of sort of the credit bubble like affected you in a way that you didn't expect, largely because you know, the entire system is just so wound together that, you know, there were pressure points that on the system that ultimately affected you, your business very strongly. Yeah. So how did that affect your ability to project out? Because that to me is the, you know, I mean, at least reading your story, it seemed to me that that was your ability to project forward was the advantage that you had over, you know, other competitors. It, it was what you were bringing to the market. But because of these sort of financial shenanigans that were going on, it made it seem pretty difficult. Like, what was that challenge like for you? And how did you sort of manage that? Well, I'm going to answer it a different way, if you don't mind. And I'm going to answer it. And what I've realized in all of these things that we're playing is a bunch of, and remember, I've been around friends of mine who have made billions in tech companies and just as capable friends who have lost everything and gone to zero and never have started again. And what I've realized about the whole thing is a lot of this comes down to luck and timing. Mm. And there's these externalities, there's these external events that also contribute to that. But when we rewrite the story in our minds, we take out all the positive luck events and we look at the negative event luck events that we overcame to say how great we were on the way through. <laughs> and when I look at people kind of in it, broadly speaking and that, that step in with no humility and what that looks like, that's probably one of my hot buttons because I've seen it. I see it for what it is. Hmm. So do you think that variability in luck has anything to do with sort of the turmoil that's caused by the credit markets expanding and contracting and so on? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So a lot of, I think you could see the theme through the book was there's a theme underlying the book that a lot of this, your place in life that you think you're operating in, there's a bigger game going on. And we believe that, and this is, you can learn a lot faster as an entrepreneur. If you take accountability for your actions and you learn and you keep hitting, if you keep hitting a wall over and over and over again, it's not everybody else, it's you. You'll learn faster. And one of the great things about being an entrepreneur is it forces you to learn at a pace that is crazy. You're thrown into the deep end and you're forced to learn things about you. But if you tie that back to what we were just saying, out of that, I've realized that my view and my fortunate events aren't all just because just because I'm an entrepreneur. They're also because I was given a gift to be born in Canada where and, and to a family that had a structure that we weren't rich, but we had money that I could get an education. And all those things build more and more capabilities in me that I take f further and build more capabilities. And so just thinking that through on everyone else, I tend not to judge. Mm. Mm. Well, that's interesting that you view things that way. And, you know, like the role of luck in entrepreneurship is something that I've thought quite a bit about. And I think you hit the nail on the head with timing piece, because so much of it comes down to releasing a product at just the right time. And if you're too early, it's the same as being wrong. And if you're too late, you know, you're kind of following, you're usually somebody's beating you to the punch and, you know, you end up being like, you know, at best, like first follower or something like that. That whole luck factor you were saying is increased by the credit market. But also, I think what you just suggested is, you know, based on where you were born and sort of circumstances that you can't necessarily control. 
Do you think that also decreases to some degree with sort of like fairer credit system or a different credit system than what we have? Yeah. And I think you know this. I am so against the credit system that we have. The rate of progress of technology today, I could have put one line in the book. Technology requires a currency that allows for deflation, period. Yeah, that could have been the one, and, and I could have finished the book in one line. Because <laughs> um, because literally, if you just go through that calculation, if technology is, is creates efficiency, and efficiency that efficiency is deflationary, and you know this, we put you put technology into a business or your life to save time. You don't put it into your business to increase cost. So that is a labor reduction, typically. It might be a labor increase if you're stealing market share from somebody else where it's a labor reduction. But in aggregate, it's a labor reduction. And that's deflationary. And so anything stopping that natural force from happening is stopping that natural force by consolidating power and ruining the free market. And it has certain and it has a whole bunch of consequences of people believing that I'm around a whole bunch of very wealthy people who have no idea that it's their luck and timing from having a whole bunch of assets earlier than other people that has contributed most to their wealth. They think it's their ingenuity. <laughs> They think they're a bunch of geniuses when in fact they've just gotten lucky. Exactly. And so I tell them that and I say, and again, some, and some are really good about it and listen and they actually they care. There's some others who would put their head in the sands and know I'm smarter than everybody else. And so I like to, you probably know this, I like to argue all sides of an issue so that I can understand it. If I'm taking a position on something, I want to be able to argue the opposite position as well as I could my position. Meaning I've, I've gone through, <laughs> my parents used to do that at the dinner table. We'd have to have a debate on Sunday evenings. And once you were fully locked into your debate with your brother or my brothers, you'd have to change sides and own the other side of the debate. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well, so that's an interesting exercise. What would your argument be for continuing the credit system that we have now? So the, it the only argument right now is the destruction to society. There is nothing backing it and it resets mm. to the ground. So, and that reset would look brutal for humanity. It would reset every institution, every government, every bank. It would, if you kept letting it reset, there's nothing there. Mm. Mm. Right. So there's, so there's 132 or 130 odd trillion dollars of negative real interest bonds right now. On your best day, you lose money if you hold them to maturity. And we all know it's going to be a lot worse than the best day. Mm. So that economic calculation of the risk-free rate is the economic calculation for every other thing around houses, everything else. So we live in a world that everything's manipulated by that risk-free rate. And most of the risk is there. And then there's Bitcoin. People mm -hmm. believe it has risk. I believe it as a symmetric bet. I think it actually is, is the risk-free rate. I think it's where all of that money will go over time. But if you just kind of stay with us, what would you do? You're the Fed. What would you do, Jimmy? <laughs> I think I would try to keep the thing going, whether that means taking on some Bitcoin on the balance sheet or something like that eventually, possibly. So that's what I would do too. So if I'm arguing that side, I understand why they're trying to, why they have to keep printing because it's way too late. They don't have a choice. It's like, uh, I use the example all the time, but it's like Blockbuster putting candy aisles in the store. They missed this. They missed <laughs> the shift. <laughs> the, mm -hmm. Netflix has taken the business and now all of the structural advantage that Blockbuster has is gone and that they can't catch up. What do they do? That's what's happening. And so if they turn off, you see what, what happened the other just last couple of days with the 10 year uh, going up as they're not buying it. And then they're forced to come back in. They have to, because the consequences of not bailing out the system and continually bailing out the system are it unwinds to the ground. Mm. Now that what I just said, there's a whole bunch of game theory in here. They could let it go for a while, blow off the top 
crush a whole bunch of people and then go and reflate the banks like they did in 2008. And Bitcoin in that event would fall too, and US dollars would get would go way up. But all of these, ultimately, that entire system is fragile, and it needs ever more printing. And that ever more printing is going to is going to bleed into society in the form of more and more inequality and a whole bunch of more second order problems. The same printing is causing. Hmm. So that brings up a question for me, which is that how did the credit system get this fragile? Right, where we had to have events in two thousand eight, where you know at the time. You know, eight hundred billion dollars just sounded like a crazy number. <laughs> like, totally. You know, it was, it was totally. like, what? How did this? Like, I didn't even know there could be that much. Like, ever now it sounds quaint, but at the time I heard it, I remember just being absolutely shocked. How did we get there? What happened? Well, remember, you're talking about eight hundred billion. It didn't start at eight hundred billion. It started at two hundred and fifty billion, and everybody said that would be enough. Right. Mm. And that number blew our minds. And then QE2, QE3, QE, it's QE infinity. And again, you know this from the book, but if my thesis was correct around technological deflation, we should see something on the other side of the ledger matching, essentially matching the exponential technology deflation on one side. And that's exactly what you see. In the last 20 years before COVID, you saw $185 trillion of essentially additional stimulus debt to try to increase, to try to grow. And remember the governments each time, each time they're lowering the interest rates, each time they're consuming more debt and creating debt bubbles, they're saying, we're going to grow out of this. And growth is always slower than the projections as it must be because of what they're doing. And so that was before 2000. And what I worried about and what really drove me to write the book is, is that's all looking backwards, looking forwards. Deflation is going to, is going to be coming at a crazy rate. So the offset has to be much bigger, just like your question about 250 or 800 billion must be bigger today than it was in 2008. If you think about what needs to come, if people are talking about $1.9 trillion right now, that's going to be mm. That's going to be quaint. Hmm. <laughs> that's that's so scary. And this is another big theme in your book is, you know, humans just have a hard time sort of being able to project exponentials. And it sounded like that was something that you encountered directly in your business that, you know, like, you know, you can see the scale that the technology that you were using sort of enabled and you know, allowed for you to, you know, double sales like in a year and things like that. Like, what can we do to prepare for that kind of exponential growth in something? Because that is something that we really have a hard time wrapping our heads around. So, and we all do, and I do too. So I've used this often. So forgive me to the Jimmy's listeners that have heard this before, but I think it's the best way to frame the, this argument. So that piece of paper folding. If you fold a piece of paper on itself 50 times, the piece of paper will reach from here to the sun. But if you ask somebody before you fold it three times or four times and ask them, they'll think at 50 folds, it'll be two inches. So mm -hmm. two inches versus the sun is a pretty big magnitude of difference. Mm -hmm. but, and so everybody misses. Nobody gets it unless they know it before. And that means all human beings will miss exponential patterns unless you're trying hard to think about them. And so when you see our technology underneath kind of moving into every industry is moving at that rate. So, and if you kind of where, what fold are we are on, you were on 30 fold 30, 34 going to 35. So we're in the big steps now, not the small steps. And it's the same reason why, People massively overestimate how how much technology is going to do in the early in the early folds. Like if you look mm. if you look at the the AI researchers in the seventies or sixties, mm. and what they said AI artificial intelligence was going to do versus what it did, you're on fold one or two, and mm. and then it kept on folding and folding, and and essentially everybody tuned it out because it didn't do anything. And now where we see where we are and what is happening and what is happening at a rate that we can't even comprehend 
it's happening right before our eyes, but we're still looking backwards. That's the same thing is why we overestimate technology in the beginning. And we talked about just before this, potentially even in quantum, we overestimate what it'll do. And that's happening right now. And it'll, a bunch of it'll fall flat. And then at one point down the road, we're going to underestimate it, or we might underestimate it. But this is pretty typical in technology, and it's typical in how thing, how fast the world's moving today. Hmm. Sounds like you're describing sort of that hype cycle where, you know, there's that initial bump of, you know, serious hype, and then there's like a trough in the middle before it really sort of takes off. So what are some of the things that you think we're kind of missing in terms of that exponential growth? Well, because artificial intelligence is a horizontal layer and it applies to everything, here's something we're very much missing. Every government in the world is saying, we need to grow, we need to get more jobs. When what they need to do is think of the opposite. And that's what deflation would force. So you would allow that productivity gain from that exponential path to be shared broadly with society and prices would fall to match. So as the jobs left and why I say that is if you think about human intelligence, human intelligence is just error correction. And we read books to error correct. We see new patterns. We error correct. The more we practice anything, we essentially super highway or neurons become super highways of information processing. And we see patterns and the things we practice more that other people can't see because of we practiced and error corrected. That's all computers are doing. If you think about artificial intelligence, it can just see even narrow artificial intelligence. It's error correcting at scale. And it's error correcting faster and it can see more inputs than we can. And so what looks like something that's crazy in some of these industries that it's starting to move into, it's the pace is unbelievable and what's happening. And I don't see how that's possible that that doesn't remove labor. Mm. And so that's one thing we're missing, how big an impact that is. Yeah, your point about it, removing sort of human labor is very interesting because, you know, at other points in the book, you talk about how consumer spending right now depends so much on debt as a result of, you know, the system of credit, basically, that allows them to do that. And instead of sort of sharing the productivity game broadly, you end up concentrating a lot of this, you know, productivity gain in the form of value capture by a few people. So what would that sort of sharing look like? What's the sort of, you know, end game that you would like to see? So when I finished the book, I was, I had explored, obviously being in technology, I had followed Bitcoin a long time before I wrote the book. I wasn't fully in until kind of midway through writing the book, but I explored it. I, and I was, hopeful in writing the book that there was a different way to be able to make this transition and thinking, okay, could you work with governments? Is there any way? Maybe what I would say is I was, like I'd said before, I like to explore a problem from all sides. And so while I was very bullish on Bitcoin, I wanted to leave open the possibility in the book, and you can even tell how the book ends, that maybe there's another possibility because whether it was Bitcoin or something else, I realized that the only way to make this transition is to allow a currency that allows the broad benefits of technology to move out. Otherwise, you're concentrating power as a result. And But I was open to hearing other arguments. And there hasn't been one. All I can see is, and it just reinforces to me that the system won't change itself and, and because it can't. And so I expect Bitcoin to essentially swallow every asset class over time and then and be a forcing function for what we're talking about. So that $400 trillion of value in the world, you could divide that by 21 million. And that's where I think Bitcoin goes to. And what I would say is, and, and remember, $400 trillion in the world today and where Bitcoin goes to, that's a relative today's purchasing value. It's just a snapshot of today because that number is going to change a lot as currencies are manipulated and everything else. So I think about pricing my world in Bitcoin 
and think about the, in my thesis, everything's getting cheaper in Bitcoin is pretty sound and it will continue to, and it'll get very cheap on the rapid rise of Bitcoin. It should get really cheap, but at the top of Bitcoin, once it, so it's upwardly volatile right now, as you know, but at the top, what that should allow you to do is move into a more stable store of value currency that you would see the natural deflation rate of technology in everything. Mm, very interesting. So you're thinking that the value capture will be in Bitcoin and it will accrue to those that own Bitcoin. And that'll be sort of like the currency that everyone uses to settle at least. And houses will go up in value in the meantime as a store of value, but they won't go up as fast as Bitcoin. It was a way to look at that value capture. Other things will go up in value as well. Raw materials will go up in value on the way through, but not as much as Bitcoin is a way that my, is, is what I think will happen. And so if I think that through and why I would want that to happen is because it resets the rules and it allows the broad-based abundance from technology to be able to move out without any uh, manipulation. And if you have an inflationary currency against that force, the technology force today, then all you're doing is concentrating power. Now, it might have always been that way. It was always that way. But we didn't see it because technology wasn't moving it at the rate it's moving today. Mm. So it happened so slowly that societies kind of put up with it. And you could move the game board. You could go off the gold reserve, go into the petrodollar system and move the game board. You could keep moving the game board. But technology is moving too fast to keep. I think today people are starting to see it and people are asking questions to which there are no good answers. Well, so what does credit look like in that sort of system? Because right now, most of the credit comes with some sort of asset as collateral, usually real estate or you know some other business or something real, I think what you would call you know something productive. And you know it gets lent on that and that's sort of how you know money enters the system is through that borrowing. And you know that in turn like dilutes everything else. But you know under a Bitcoin cent, what do you think credit looks like? Does it even exist? Is it you know, how does it work? Like, how would it prevent sort of like the credit bubbles that we've seen in our current system? So in my hope, and this isn't a guarantee, but my hope is that if you're providing credit on Bitcoin, and I think this is how it would work, if you make a bad loan, you lose your Bitcoin. You lose. Mm. And so credit would work on, I could pledge my Bitcoin. And if I invested in a business that I thought could outperform my Bitcoin and the business failed, I lose my Bitcoin. And which is how a free market should work. And when people are making a bet on the future, they're making a bet on a, a rate of return that exceeds their rate of return on what they're doing. And that's where, and so I don't think it changes anything from that structure. And it doesn't change me investing in other businesses or anything else. It just, it might change the threshold level of my investment. This investment must do this or this. I really believe in these founders and their ability to change the world, to be able to go into this one because my rate of return in Bitcoin might be higher. So it might change my threshold for what I'll invest in, but uh, it doesn't change the economic calculation. Mm. So, you know, there will be a higher bar for entrepreneurs to meet to get external investment. Do you think that spurs maybe more internal investment? Kind of like what you did at the beginning, you kind of bootstrapped with, you know, the money that you had. Do you think that's something happens? What I've learned, uh, Jimmy, and constraints provide better options. Mm. If you're constrained, if you have unlimited dollars, you spend them foolishly. If you have a constraint, here's something I used to ask to the business, my business all the time, just when you're bringing a product on and I'll just name something white. Name something white? Um, Toilet? (laughs) Okay. But see, it took you some time. Name something white in your fridge. And Uh, (laughs) eggs. Exactly. And you can go through milk, eggs, a whole bunch of things and you get it actually Uh faster when you have constraints. Mm -hmm. 
The same thing is true when you're building technology or an idea. Technology companies typically scale by going after something narrow first and then broadening rather than going after something broad, really broad-based companies that that think they can do everything fail because they just waste money everywhere. Well, that sounds like an interesting contrast between Bitcoin and Ethereum. You know, Bitcoin's very narrow for now. It's seen more or less as digital gold, whereas Ethereum's trying to be everything to everybody. (laughs) What's your analysis? (laughs) Exactly. Like Ethereum's still a science project. And it's started up kind of uh, the world computer, everything to everyone. And and what happens is, did you read the piece I put that called, I think you probably were on the same one on the greatest game. Um, I don't remember, Okay, uh, but I lay out that case and I don't lay it out specifically with Ethereum, but I do lay it out for Bitcoin and Bitcoin s- starts kind of in a narrow space as a store of value. And then as it wins a store of value, a second layer is developed on it and becomes payments and everything else. So I think that ecosystem is happening. It's just really early in the ecosystem. But that's exactly why I'm. I like Bitcoin so much. I think it's. I think if I think about it from a way to build technology, a way to create monopoly power in technology companies, it's following the same process. Yeah. So much of what seems to be happening is that you know, like the Michael Saylors of the world are sort of almost attacking it from a like doing a speculative attack on it. You know, taking loans in fiat money and putting it into Bitcoin. What what are your thoughts on how much that continues to happen as we go along? So again, that leverage or that risk reward scenario. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I'd say with Michael Saylor, I love entrepreneurs like him with conviction. So he's done his work, he's decided and there is no return if everyone thinks the return is the same. So he's gone in early, understands the network effect, understands the protocol, understands everything else, and he's made a bet. And when I say bet, I think it's the safest bet he could make. I might be wrong. but So people have to listen to this and say, okay, maybe Jeff's wrong too. Maybe Michael Saylor's wrong, and they have to do their own homework. But I think he made an incredible bet. And I think he's right. And to me, it's not, it's, it's the most asymmetric bet around. And so now he's levering that and he can, and he has the ability, $600 million bond at a zero coupon rate Mm -mm. to be able to go into this bet. Not a bad bet. Mm. Yeah. Very. And I think he was oversubscribed by 400 million. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Insane. And so... And so that's, I guess, if we go back into, that's what an entrepreneur does. They see a window and they see, why doesn't everybody else see this? And they go hard to that window. So I think he's done that and he's done an excellent job. And he's actually brought a whole bunch more credibility to the Bitcoin space from doing that. Yeah. One of the things that I read earlier in the book that I thought was very insightful was you stated basically that when predicting things, what's more important is figuring out what won't change than what will. Right. And, you know, you brought up the example of Jeff Bezos, you know, him asking himself that question as well. And immediately reminded me of 21 million, because of course, that's not changing. How do you think Bitcoin helps entrepreneurs going forward to plan? Well, so now, if we're talking now, we're in the middle of a system change and that system change is bound to be chaotic and it's going to confuse a lot of people. And there's a whole bunch of events, fed stopping printing, fed printing more printing have radical implications on every single person's business. I think the number came out today, 26% of the entire economy is from the government right now. So, And can you imagine if there was no printing, what real estate prices would look like and everything else? So it's fair to say the government is the economy everywhere. There is no free market. And as that whipsaws back and forth, there's a whole bunch of every single business is making their choices in a world that's that's going all over the place. And it's really hard to plan cost of capital and everything else. In fact, 
that's a really good example on why Michael Saylor put his balance sheet into that. Because what a CEO does, one of the things they have to do is understand their treasury and where they're going to get a return. And if you're playing in a world that's breaking down, you're gambling with that return. And so Bitcoin is, I think, is a safer return in that environment. We'll see if I'm right, you're right, he's right. But I think it's a very safe return. Now, fast forward to the other side of this. In an economic calculation with deflation, you would project instead of growth going up, 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 up forever, you would expect costs coming down to a point of free and uh, forever. So there would be a lifetime value of that investment, some longer and everything else. And you would just calculate differently and look at the rate of return based on that. And then think about things like, so I've been asked this question a lot. Okay. So what about the things that cost a lot of money? Mm. As prices fall at the rate that labor is leaving the market. So you have a whole bunch of people that don't work, that don't need to, because prices have fallen so much or negligible work because prices have fallen so much along with the, with the technology rate. And you had one or two industries with high margins. What do you think would happen? They would kind of take over. They would attack those industries like, (laughs) because (laughs) that's how you make money, right? That's how you make more money than somebody else. You see opportunity into, so it wouldn't change. It wouldn't change the free market. It wouldn't change. You would have creativity and innovation thriving in a market like that because it would be more incentive to go break down the the rest of the industries that uh, that charged outrageous prices. Mm. Indeed, we're interesting world that we're thinking about, and this is sort of like the promise of technology from a long time ago. And I think you kind of hinted at this in the book of, you know, people just having shorter hours instead of, you know, what we have right now, which is lots of people working way more than, you know, what the technological deflation should seem to make it. So how do you think that plays out? Do you think, you know, there's just like a mass of unemployed people or is it each person just works less proportionately? I think there will be some unemployment and some people work less. I don't think so. The natural order of things should not be that we work more and more forever for less and less. So that's what we're doing in the existing system. We're keeping people on a rat. So inflation, the opposite side of inflation is wage deflation, right? So in other words, you're paying people less so that they can work more on an ever, ever expanding scale. And if you stop paying them less, so if their labor rate rises at the same rate, then what will the business do? That'll be the first place they put in technology. And and some of these things are so hard to comprehend because our world has always worked a different way. And so you need almost need to rewire, okay, if technology, because if technology is as deflationary as I say it is, and, and it is, then again, all printing means all all inflation means I'm consolidating power and consolidating power by paying people less to pretend they need a job so that they keep on working so that I can stay in power. Mm. Very interesting. So, all right, we're kind of getting up to an hour now. So there's a few things I definitely wanted to cover. You predicted you know, in a tweet with, you know, Twitter exchange with Elon Musk that he would come to Bitcoin before March. And you had a very specific time frame and he met it, uh, <laughs> which I thought was uh, like absolutely crazy. What made you think that he would like come around so quickly? What were the macro conditions or what went into your calculation? So I don't understand how anyone thinking in first principles couldn't understand Bitcoin. And Elon thinks in per- first principles in a whole bunch of in a whole bunch of his businesses. And that made me realize he is going to have to connect the dots at some point on this. And even furthermore, and I went, this is a different tweet that I went back and forth with him on, but the climate problem that he says he's solving can't be solved with a fiat monetary policy. And why? Because 
the innovation is coming on the innovation. And if you just said solar or anything else, it's coming on at lower and lower prices. So that energy and other innovations are coming on at lower prices than existing prices. And that means to keep prices. So that's more deflation and it's going to be additive to what we have today. And on an exponential scale going forward as prices get lower and lower and more abundance goes up from those prices. And in other words, a fiat monetary policy or a fiat system that requires inflation invalidates all of the entrepreneurs doing the work to save the climate. And again, I've asked this question. I asked that question to Bill Gates too, but I asked it to Elon and you get a very big silence. No one answers the question. And I think a question as big as that especially when people say climate is such an important thing and we're going to spend all this money on climate to make things cheaper. Okay. How's that going to work? I think question as big as that deserves an answer if people care about climate. And so I just realized that Elon is, he's crazy sometimes, but he's also really thoughtful and he's, he thinks in first principles and he would be one of the first tech executives to get it. I thought, Mm. Do you have any other predictions that we should be <laughs> looking forward to? What, um, what I would say, Jimmy, is a lot of the people that, and I don't say names or anything else, but a lot of the people that, whether their business currently holds it or not, a lot of the people and tech executives as well are already in and they're starting to understand it. And it's just a path of more and more understanding. So I expect over time, all of the companies to, to start carrying it on their balance sheet and it's starting and it caused a cascade of more and more companies needing to the same way it started with users acquiring and, and then bringing on more and more users. So that network effect is, is alive and well. And I think we're going to see some pretty extraordinary things in the next year. I think that's a pretty good place to end it. I think you're giving us a really hopeful note of the future and system reset and sort of, you know, gave us a really nice overview of what's going on with the credit markets and why it is the way it is. So I want to thank you. Where can people find you, Jeff? Probably the best is just at Jeff Booth on Twitter. Mm. Great. Do you have a website or anything? I do. It's more of just a number of the different companies I'm involved. That's uh, jeffreybooth.com. Okay, great. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Jeff Booth can be found at at Jeff Booth on Twitter, and his book can be found on thepriceoftomorrow.com. Until next time. Fiat Delenda Est.